Welcome to the Transfer Window. I'm Henry McRae and I'm joined by podcast regulars and football insiders Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles. Today we'll be keeping a close eye on this story that won't go away linking Manchester United manager Josie Mourinho with a summer switch to PSG. We'll be looking at the coach that won't go away as the unflushable David Moyes bobs back up again at West Ham United. And we'll be looking at the coach that did go away but it seems Big Sam is now determined to get back in anywhere and everywhere. But first, we'll head to Stamford Bridge and one figure who really has gone away. And that's the curious case of Michael Eminalo, who quit his post as Chelsea's technical director one day after their convincing victory over Manchester United last weekend. Now, Ian, you're always good for an inside word on the goings-on at the bridge. What can you tell us? about why he's gone and what it means for Antonio Conte's Chelsea. Well, Henry, I'd say that it's um, it came as a surprise to most people, but not as a shock to me or indeed a lot of people at the club. Um, the last 18 months, uh, let's say three transfer windows, have proven problematic um, in the uh, corridors of power at Chelsea because Marina Granovskaya, um, Roman Abramovich's uh, closest aide who now works for the club, she's effectively chief executive officer there now, um, has taken most of the power in terms of the actual negotiation of transfers at the club. Uh, whereas Michael Emanalo, as technical director, has overseen in his 10 years there the most successful period in the club's history in terms of winning trophies, including, of course, uh, the Champions League in 2012. Um, let's just remind ourselves that Emanalo has been central to the signings of such players as Aidan Hazard, uh, as uh, Thibaut Courtois, to Diego Costa, uh, um, as well as um, many, many of their uh, academy players who have gone on to produce a fairly substantial profit uh, in the transfer market. I'm talking people like Nathan Aki, who went to uh, Southampton, sorry, to Bournemouth for £20 million uh, in the summer window, etc. So... Um, Emanalo came to the club as a relative unknown, recruited by Roman Abramovich. Bizarrely, at the time, he was coaching under-16s girls football in Tucson, Arizona, would you believe? So hardly the kind of person you expect to arrive at a European elite club. But what he did was he learned on the job. He, um, he made lots of good contacts in football industry. And his very diplomatic uh, manner, <clears throat> and I spoken and met and, and conversed with Emanalo on multiple occasions and always found him to be very knowledgeable and uh, also very, very um, good at his job in terms of the way that he he presented himself on the club. Gravsky, on the other hand, is someone who <clears throat> is new to football, relatively speaking. Um, she is abrasive. Her, uh, her demeanour, her manner in the way that she uh, tries to negotiate transfer deals is categorised by people in the game as uh, confrontational. Um, and the, the fallout between Emanalo and Gravsky has led to this uh, point where he's decided he can no longer work with her or be part of Chelsea. Now, in the short term, this is bad news for Antonio Conte, because while Conte and Emanalo themselves did not all see eye to eye, Emanalo was at least a buffer between uh, the management stroke um, football department and Granovskaya's CEO uh, leadership style. So what Chelsea will find is that they have a vacuum now in terms of the connection between the management staff, coaching staff, football uh, department, stroke dressing room, and the people who administrate the club. Um, now, I suspect Roman Bramovich is not overly concerned about that right now because he will see um, success on the field or not, as the ultimate deciding factor on where they go with this. But I think, uh, and what I've heard is that players and Conte himself are very disappointed that Emanalo has, has gone. Just a little detail, which is important sometimes just to take into um, context, is that if you look at any Chelsea match, Emanalo is unusual in that he is, sits directly behind the bench in the technical area at every game. He's there on the bench, 
listening, talking, understanding what actually happens during games, never mind at the training ground. So I think he'll be a miss for the club. I know they're already looking to replace him, but what's for sure is whoever comes in will not have the same level of authority that Emanalo had built up. Whoever comes in will effectively be a yes person to Granovskaya. And I think, therefore, they will find difficulty in negotiations. Uh, Duncan, you were very close to the um, potential transfer of Alexander from Juventus to Chelsea last summer. And I think you probably heard quite a lot about Granovskaya's, uh, inverted commas, techniques of negotiation and can expand probably on how that impacted upon um, the transfer policy. Yeah, look, I think it's clear that Granovskaya has, has directed transfer policy at Chelsea for, uh, you know, basically since since Abramovich moved her in from being his his personal assistant in business matters to being a person that the, the club describes as a, a representative of the owner of the club and working in support of the board of directors. She was basically brought in as a de facto chief executive at the time. Um, to replace Ron Gourley, albeit Ron Gourley only resigned from the club um, three years later. But she took over that role as far as the people dealing with the club were concerned. So if you were an agent trying to move a player to Chelsea, your negotiations weren't with Ron Gourley. They weren't primarily with Michael Emanalo, they were with Granovskaya because she controlled the purse strings. Um, Emanalo's actually achieved something quite remarkable in that he's left the club of his own accord um, and the, the Russians ownership aren't used to that they, they, they get rid of their football staff when they feel it's appropriate for them to, to send them packing um, primarily of course managers and coaches but also players from time to time um, and the briefing from Chelsea has been that they didn't want um, Emanalo to leave and that the, the resignation well it didn't take them by surprise, because he'd um, uh, intimated that he wanted to leave in the summer, um, was one that they tried to prevent from happening. Um, the briefing has been that Abramovich himself intervened to try and convince Emanalo to carry on for a longer period, which shows you that he had a worth to the owner. Um, and I think a lot of the worth is, is in the elements you talk about, which is, Ian, which is that presence within the training ground, that presence on the bench during games, um, his knowledge of football as being a, a successful former international played in the in the World Cup for Nigeria, um, not probably in his coaching skills. It, um, you'll remember that uh, Abramovich um, appointed him into Carlo Ancelotti's uh, technical staff when, when Abramovich decided to sack Ray Wilkins against An Ancelotti's will, and, uh, and then was left in the embarrassing situation of having to adjust that appointment because Emanalo didn't actually have his coaching qualifications at the time. But he's been that presence of being the, the owner's trusted figure in the camp with football knowledge who can speak to players, who can speak to the coach, who can monitor what's going on and report back his opinions on it. And when Chelsea get to those crunch points, which they do basically in a two-year cycle of, of wanting to change or thinking about changing their manager, he is a guy who's consulted. Is it time to do it? Um, what do we, we go for next? Um, the relationship with Conte, I think, was not good. Um, well, I'm told from Conte's end it was not good. Um, and I think there was an interesting little cameo at the end of the Manchester United match where Conte uh, walked off the field. Emanalo stood at the mouth of the tunnel um, to pat Conte on the back and Conte uh, pointedly um, ignored Emanalo, didn't shake his hand and, and strode on down the tunnel, um, which gives you an ind indication of, of where their relationship had got to through the various conflicts um, that have occurred over transfer policy. Um, basically since Conte arrived at the football club. So what do we think the impact will be on, um, you know, immediate uh, plans in the, the upcoming transfer window? Is, does this throw existing plans into disarray? Or? Not, not really, Henry. Um, <clears throat> what, what we know for sure, and we've, we've spoken about it on a few occasions on the Transfer Window podcast uh, previously, is that 
But Conte's position uh, is also very uh, vulnerable at Chelsea. And um, it's highly unlikely that in the position that Conte is in, i.e. most likely to leave at the end of this season and possibly before, that anyone in the hierarchy at Chelsea is going to invest a lot of money in the January window at Conte's say-so. So um, any plans that they have to, to purchase in January will probably have been made above his head, or it's it, it certainly at the very least with um, his minimal uh, input. So Chelsea will do what Chelsea will do regardless of the manager in January. I doubt that they're going to invest significantly um, as is historically factual. It's very, very difficult to buy in the January window uh, in the middle of a season. Quality players are going to um, increase the benefit to your squad in the longer term. Maybe in the short term, yes. Um, but, you know, it's, that's... I mean, the best example of that, of course, was the Chelsea's purchase of Fernando Torres in the January window for £50 million and then the club record fee, um, which was proved to be disastrous, um, all uh, things considered. So um, I don't think it will necessarily impact January. Um, I think Chelsea will... Certainly not will, they are um, looking for a new technical director or director of football. It might be that that... Even that job title is scaled down to either head of recruitment or director of football operations um, with less power. This is a, a, this is a, a power struggle, if you like, which Gwyneth Sky has one hands down. She will be the one who conducts negotiations, who decides on which targets should be pursued and which ones shouldn't. Which is remarkable when you think about it, that you know her background in football is only working at Chelsea for... Uh, the owner, who she obviously is very trusted by, but she has no uh, qualifications, no experience, no knowledge of football, and effectively what we have now is the a former secretary controlling solely the transfers of yeah. a world elite football club. Now, it's, it's, ask, ask yourself, where else would that happen at Chelsea? I don't think anywhere else. It's interesting timing after, you know, a significant win against United, which also, you know, there were there were interesting developments prior to that. Obviously, David Luiz was was dropped. Is there is there any, you know, did that have an impact on on subsequent events? What's the what's the subtext to, you know, the the Luiz situation and uh, and what's going on now? Well, David Luiz um, being dropped entirely. Uh, from the squad was a very aggressive move from Conte, which was kind of typical of him. When when he gets into adversity, he will take the players on head to head and um, say to them, "You are not performing in the way that is um, you're capable of as professionals, and I'm not I'm not accepting that, and you must change." Um, if you look at the press conferences he's given this season, he keeps on talking about the the kind of yo-yo um, mentality. Um, an effort of the team. Um, his frustration has been that they've, they've been exceptional in, a, in two or three games, Manchester United being one of them, um, Atletico Madrid away, another one, winning at Tottenham, another, and then underperformed badly in most of the rest of the games. Um, and, and that is one of the elements contributing to Conte's extreme anger um, and, and that's what his friends describe it as, you know, almost to the point of losing control was the, the way they were talking about him go, going into that game against Manchester United. But he, he did it in a clever fashion in that he knew he was dropping a player that is extremely highly valued by Abramovich in the board, a player that they've signed twice for, for substantial sums. But then he, he, as he announced it, I talked about it to the uh, television before the match. He highlighted that he was playing an academy graduate um, in his place and made a statement along the lines of, and this club likes um, playing academy graduates. So he, 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 he sort of said, said, look, I'm doing something for myself, but I'm doing it in a way that you've told me to do because you've told me to pro promote more academy players. And the key thing was that he won. In terms of what they do in transfer policy, I agree with Ian. I don't think it will make a difference to the way the club goes. They're not going to invest heavily in Conte because as far as they're concerned, his time is coming to an end. And 
Um, it's a matter of whether he goes at the end of the season or whether he goes before that. Um, Granovskaya in particular, I'm told, has a very difficult and strained relationship with Conte. But does, um, he, does he not, um, because he's won, and you know he, he pulled an aggressive move, um, he dropped Luiz to the bench, he beats Man United. Does Abramovich look at that and go, fair play, hats off, um, you know, I'm for impressed. About, for about five minutes he does. Henry. And then it's then it's back to... Yeah, for about five you know, minutes. Still toast. I, th- I, th- I think we've got to remember that um, David Lees was, was returned to Chelsea because he is one of Roman Abramovich's favourite players. He was not necessarily the choice of anyone at the club in terms of the uh, coaching staff, but he is loved by... Uh, the 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 owner of the club, who, in fact, saw him as the long term successor to John Terry as captain of the club, and the fact that Gary Cahill remains captain of the club uh, instead of Louise is still a matter of debate in uh, Roman Abramovich's executive box on uh, every second week when they play at home. So um, that was a kind of uh, you know two fingers, one finger, whichever one way you want to put it, to Roman Abramovich by dropping about the squad completely the same way as um, Conte started the first game of the season with all three of the uh, gifts that he was given in terms of the transfer market on the bench, uh, Murata, Rudiger um, uh, and Bakayoko also all remained on the bench for the first game of the season. He was effectively saying, you didn't buy the players I wanted and so I'm playing the players that I played last season and won me, won me the, the, the Premier League title and in dropping Louise it was another way of saying, you know, I will not. I'll be my own man. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be dictated to by anyone, um, because I know the destiny. Uh, my destiny, at Chelsea, is that I'll be leaving. So it's a very listen. Chelsea's always been a dysfunctional club, um, and the reason for that is because you've got one man who, at the very top, who controls everything, and you've got under that you've got a whole uh, raft of people desperately trying to impress. Uh, the owner because of the riches that are uh, there to be earned in terms of salaries and bonuses um, if they seem to be or if they're even if they just present themselves as being the architects of success. Um, Emanuela was particularly clever in presenting himself as a person who uh, consistently produced the goods for Chelsea whether it was in terms of investment in players and then resale or whether it was in terms of good recruitment of players to then prove to be very good for the club, like Aiden Hazard, for instance, uh, when he was bought for less than £20 million from Lille. So, uh, Emmanuel going, I think, is a big shift at Chelsea because he was the one consistent factor over 10 years. Coaches, managers, coaching staff, players uh, have all come and gone, and Emmanuel stayed. And him leaving, um, as I said, leaves a vacuum. So, it's going to be interesting how Chelsea try to replace him or fill that, that gap. Um, what appears to me to be the case is that Chelsea are now heading into a period in their history where uh, the people at the top that I'm, I've just been talking about will run the football side of the club rather than actually their management and coaching staff. Um, and that will be uh, a dynamic which is there to be seen, whether it's successful or completely fails. Look, Emanuela was a good salesman. If you look at the interview he gave to Chelsea TV about his resignation, he came out with the phrase that praising the academy and saying it was the best academy in football, bar none, which is a ridiculous statement given that it's an academy that is yet to produce a regular first-team player for its own club. But it's the kind of statement that, that Roman Abramovich buys into because the academy has... Um, won a lot of youth titles and Roman Abramovich has bought this line that the reason he doesn't have academy players in the first team is because the coaches uh, keep refusing to pick them um, uh, as a to frustrate him, presumably. Um, what Emanalo has done well at the club is put in place a system of worldwide scouting of players, which has seen them sign huge numbers of players from foreign clubs station them at Chelsea for a short period of time or even directly loan them to other um, clubs in Europe and and clubs in England and then sell them on at profit two, three, four years down the line. So they've made a lot of money in that kind of supermarket recruitment policy, which quite often hasn't uh, produced players for the first team, but has produced transfer revenues and that helped them get around financial fair play. And Emanalo, although he wasn't so much directly involved in that scouting process, he did have 
the intelligence to hire a guy, Scott McLachlan, as, uh, as their head of scouting, who put in uh, what is regarded by other scouts in football as being one of the best scouting systems around at the moment, which, is, which has been successful for them. In terms of Conte's position, it's, look, it's very easy in football to get carried away by one good result. And obviously the result on Sunday was a, a very good result and the performance from Chelsea was impressive because of the way the players responded. I'll give you a scenario. If Conte keeps producing those results, Roman Abramovich will, yes, be much happier with him. But Conte can keep producing those results if he keeps on questioning Roman Abramovich in the transfer market and his running of the club in complaining that he doesn't have direct access to the owner and doesn't have direct access to Granovskaya. It doesn't matter about those results. Eventually, he will, get, he will be done away with because Abramovich does not tolerate that kind of dissent from his managers. We have example after example after example of it at Chelsea. The pattern's not going to change just because um, David Luiz and won a game against a former Chelsea manager last weekend. Okay, well, um, from the current Chelsea manager to a former Chelsea manager and uh, the uh, vanquished visitor from last weekend, Jose Mourinho, of course. Um, back in the headlines, ongoing uh, links to uh, Mourinho and PSG. Is this, this story isn't going away, Duncan. Um, why is that? Is there some truth? Are we expecting Josie to depart, or what do you know? Well, Henry, it's a, it's a story the Daily Record broke, so it's obviously a true story. Um, we, we ran it um, last month um, that Paris Saint-Germain had uh, approached Mourinho to canvas his interest in taking over at PSG uh, in the summer. Uh, because they've been planning to replace Unai Emery, who, as, as we've discussed in the podcast, is having problems with the, the FC Hollywood Paris Saint-Germain squad and is unlikely to retain his position unless he can get them um, very far advanced in the Champions League this season. So um, in terms of the interest from PSG, absolutely correct. Um, I think the story as reported at the moment in the papers is probably somewhat overblown. It's now getting reported to the extent that he's almost expected to leave um, for PSG. That's not my understanding of the situation. It's um, definitely not that advanced. Um, PSG haven't made a final decision on replacing Emery. And Mourinho, his aim is to succeed at Manchester United. He came to the club to uh, win the Premier League title, to re-establish them as contenders for the Champions League, um, hopefully to win the Champions League down the line. It was an initial three-year project. Um, when I interviewed him, uh, what, about six weeks ago now, he very much talked about being halfway through that three-year project of rebuilding the squad and that there was significant work still to be done. Um, and he's, he's conscious of that. It's, um, it's a project that's ongoing and he wants the support of Manchester United's board in that massive rebuild project, which is more than just bringing new players in, which is more than just changing the way they play on the field, which is more than training them a different way. It's almost every element of the club that touches on the football side. So things like medical department, things like recruitment policy, things like scouting, things like the setup of the training ground. Um, all of those things are important to him. He feels he's been frustrated by the club's decisions in a number of those areas. And um, part of the process at the moment is trying to, trying to improve that and trying to get the club to push more and provide more to the football department so they can succeed on the field. Historically, what we know about Jose Mourinho um, and the way he manages football clubs is that um, <clears throat> he, he goes in initially, uh, he creates um, a momentum within the dressing room. His first priority is always to get a winning team on the pitch to put silverware in the trophy cabinet. And he does that, first of all, because he's, he's a born winner. It's, it's in his DNA. But he also does it because it gives him leverage with the people upstairs 
to then get the things he wants and needs to continue and build upon that success. Some clubs buy into it, some clubs don't, and some clubs take a while to be persuaded. But, again, factually, Mourinho has never stayed more than three years or just over three years at any club um, in his career uh, to date. He's uh, 18 months into a three-year contract at Manchester United. He won two trophies in his first season. He clearly believes he has earned the right to stamp his authority on a club which traditionally, and this goes back to Sir Alex Ferguson and does not include the Moyes and Van Hal era, which traditionally is not used to moving quickly on anything because they see themselves as such an established brand, if you like, an established club, that uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Unfortunately, Mourinho thinks differently. He thinks it is broke or has been broken since the departure of Ferguson. And it does need fixing and modernising and bringing into line with his ambitions and his uh, desire in terms of the um, specification that he requires to achieve and build on success. Now, I read this as a typical Mourinho uh, sort of power battle. Not power battle, I think that's overstating it. It's basically Mourinho trying to say, look, if you want me to manage the club, then you've got to trust in me. You've got to do what I ask and change the things that I need changed in order for me to feel comfortable that I can achieve uh, an environment of success at this club. And that's not all about transfer. It's not all about investment in the squad. It's certainly that is a significant part of it. But it's also what Duncan has um, inferred there about things like medical department, about how the club do pre-match, which hotels they stay in, how they travel. Um, yeah, I know, but why? Why wouldn't? Why wouldn't the club just do that? Is it so? Is it just me or being cynical? But it sounds like he's making excuses. I mean, if if Mourinho wants to set up a training pitch the way he wants, why why would the club say no? You can't do that. I mean. No, they don't really... say they don't say no, Henry. That's the point. They don't say no. They just don't action it. Quickly. But why not? Well, because I said because they're a club who are used to not doing things very quickly. Um, Manchester United now, yeah, in in the in the Glazer era, operates first and foremost as a business, and there are many distractions for Ed Woodward and the executive board and the Glazer family with regard to what they need to do to continue sustained growth of the share price the sustained growth of the business in terms of marketing, in terms of uh, the turnover of the club, in terms of the way that they have a business plan set out for, say, the next one to five years. So when Mourinho sends a memo to people upstairs saying, I need this, you need to sign off whatever it is, uh, 50, 100 grand to get this done, he wants it done straight away. But he finds it gets ignored for four to six weeks or even longer. And then he has to go to the board, he has to go to Woodward and say, you know, what the hell's going on? Why am I not getting what I asked for? And they say, oh, we've been busy. Now, as far as Mourinho's concerned, and I think he's correct, busy does not make an excuse for why you're not changing the things to make sure that everything on the pitch is absolutely 100% so is that, perfect. is that not an argument for a director of football? Duncan? You, you can have a director of football in, in place there to action those things. But if the director of football has to go to the board to get approval to spend the money and the board don't make the decision for four to six weeks, you've got the same problem. You're just adding another uh, level another into, the, yeah. into the bureaucracy. Ian's absolutely right. Manchester United is a business. It's the Glazers run it to make money. And Ed Woodward's principal role as a Glazer employee is to make money for the owners of the football club. Therefore, the club is run on an overly bureaucratic basis in the view of some people who are working within it and trying to win football matches. So you get decisions as minor as changing office furniture, which would cost a few hundred pounds, which aren't allowed to be done for several weeks because the board won't sign off or the people who um, sign off for the board won't sign off on that change because they, have, they, they run it in a way to minimise costs. Then you get far more important elements like as happened last season. Uh, Manchester United are playing away game in London. They have a very tight fixture schedule with European games, which is putting stress on the players. Um, they are supposed to have a 
plane charter to take them back from London to Manchester as quickly as possible so the players can get more rest and be ready for training the next day and the plane isn't there because uh, people at the club had failed to book a plane that would definitely be available at the time required for um, the players. That has a direct impact on uh, conditioning and preparation and mental state because everyone knows how frustrating it is to go to the airport and wait uh, for hours when your plane's not there going into the matches. And, you know, you, you can scoff at it and say, oh, that's, they're professional footballs, it shouldn't make that much difference. But these, we know that football these days is about small margins. It's about tiny details because most teams now prepare well and uh, the physiological training, the fitness conditioning of most teams is far superior to what it was a decade ago. So you want to get all of those things in place to succeed. And that's, you know, that's Mourinho's method as a manager has been prepare better than the opposition tactically, physically, and every, mentally to give his team an advantage over opponents. And when he feels the club is not doing their side of the job, it frustrates him hugely and is a, always has always been a cause of tension at previous clubs. You can argue that he should be calmer in these situations, but ultimately the, the pursuit of those small margins is important to success. And it's part of the, the reason why he's won so many trophies as a, as a manager. And if you're going to appoint a manager at a football club, particularly in the way Manchester United have done, which is to say, we really need someone to organ reorganise the football side of our club because it's gotten a mess post David Moyes and post Louis van Gaal. If you're going to appoint someone on that basis, you then have to trust his decisions. You've, you've got to back him to go all the way in, the, in what he wants to do, because he's not doing it out of self-interest, primarily. He's doing it because he wants the team to win games, which should be the end goal of yeah. any football club, surely. And, and two things, just quickly to add to that, Duncan, um, is uh, one, you have to ask the question externally, as a football club as big as, um, which has the financial uh, clout of Manchester United, why the hell couldn't they organise a plane to be there on time? It's, it's, if there any, you know, any multinational global business, organising a plane for your key employees to take them in order to maximise their benefit advantage in their next challenge, either its game, why the hell could they not actually do that? And, and again, I think the answer is it's the levels of bureaucracy. It's also the fact that uh, Manchester United generally are sleepy when it comes to these things because they've been so used to be uh, to being successful that they don't see why it's changing. And the second thing I'd say is that at Chelsea in his, in his first spell at International uh, Inter Milan uh, when he went there and then at Real Madrid, um, what Mourinho asked for, he got. And he changed everything about the organisational preparation uh, and reprep of those clubs. And they gave him complete control to do those things. And he saw success in all three jobs. And now he's frustrated by the fact that he's gone into Manchester United and they do not act on his word and instead wait that, you know, whatever it is, a month, two months before actually even getting around to discussing it. And I can see his frustration and this point as being correct. He will, he'll be the one who ultimately will pay with his job if United aren't successful. So these small things, as you say, Duncan, those small um, margins are the ones which for someone who micromanages and is a control freak like Mourinho, are incredibly important. Okay, so Antonio Conte obviously got the better of uh, Josie Mourinho and his side at Stamford Bridge at the weekend, which is the latest in a reasonably long line of poor away results for Mourinho at his main rivals. Um, there's a stat floating around that these last 11 games um, away to the other five teams in the so-called Big Six have resulted in five draws and six losses. So, Duncan, is that a fair reflection of Mourinho and his approach to away games, or is this just uh, damn lies and statistics? Well, it's like any of these statistics. It's, it's kind of cherry-picked. Um, it's, it's been interesting, and in you've seen it almost everywhere in the media, and it's been presented as one evidence that Mourinho has passed it, as a, as a top-level manager, that is, he is too defensive and that he cannot win these games 
uh, away from home to major rivals anymore and therefore cannot win the league. It's also been used to feed into the argument that he doesn't fit the Manchester United uh, style and identity. He doesn't have the swashbuckling, attack-at-all-cost mentality that his predecessor, Sir Alex Ferguson, had. Um, there are problems with context uh, with the statistics, as, as you know, there are with any stat. You've got, to, you've got to look at the numbers and then you've got to ask, why are the numbers that way and how do they compare with others? Um, what you haven't seen anywhere is that comparison. How do the other uh, managers of the, of the big six do in these away games? And you know, I, I looked through the, the numbers um, this week and I discovered that, surprise, surprise, no one does very well in uh, away games to the top clubs. In fact, of the, of the six um, managers, uh, super managers, if you like, that we have at the moment um, in, at the big clubs in the Premier League, um, since Mourinho's appointment, so the last uh, season and this season, none of them have a positive record in those matches. The best return is the nine points out of 21 that Jurgen Klopp's achieved at Liverpool. And as we know, in his last two away games, uh, big six away games, he got hammered 5-0 at Manchester City and got heavily defeated 4-1 by Tottenham. So, so his record seems to be turning. Um, Arsene Wenger's is worse than Mourinho's in terms of point return. And Mauricio Pochettino's is at the same level as Mourinho's. Um, also, if you look over the last 10 champions of the Premier League, you'll find that only two of the champions managed to take more points than they lost in those big six away games. Um, with some of the, the, the title holders even winning, managing to win the title with just four points out of 15. And in, in Ferguson's, one of, in one of Ferguson's last seasons, notably, just two points out of 15 away from home and still won the title. And then there's a final bit of context, which is, again, no one's been mentioning, which is important, is that three of Mourinho's Manchester United games came in the last month of last season, when, as we all know, he had prioritised the Europa League over the Premier League and was to the extent where he was playing 18-year-olds uh, in, in the team against uh, Arsenal and Tottenham and was without, obviously, Pogba, Ibrahimovic and Rojo because of injury, all key players for him. So, effectively, he'd gone into big six games playing weak inside and, surprise, surprise, don't get the result. But none of this is mentioned. That is brought up. So, the record isn't as bad as it looks would be my um, take on it. I, I bow to Dr Duncan's um, factual evidence there, um, Henry. I, I would say there's one other thing we should add into this discussion before we move on, and that is um, when Manchester City are playing a style of football which has the country, if not Europe and the rest of the world, fawning over Pep Guardiola um, because of the way the exciting, dynamic and entertaining way in which they have... Um, come together as a team, they're now obviously significantly clear at the top of the Premier League uh, in a fallow period of the international break. Um, people are uh, effectively saying, that, uh, including the bookmakers, that the title belongs to Manchester City. Um, the scrutiny and the uh, microscope will then turn to Manchester United above all other uh, of the leading contenders for the same title. And so Mourinho and his Manchester United team will come under much more uh, scrutiny than anyone else. And people will pick out and cherry pick, as, as Duncan rightly said, certain statistics to make them look worse than they actually are. Um, I think Manchester United uh, are, are a better team than people have been pointing out. Um, I think they've suffered in recent weeks a, a loss of form from Romelu Lukaku, which has been uh, detrimental. Uh, to, to say the least in terms of the, the, the results that they've achieved and also the way they, they've been playing. And um, I think what we'll see coming out of this international break is a renewed Manchester United because um, Mourinho is someone who obsesses about the uh, deficiencies in his team and he will find solutions to ensure that those deficiencies are in some way rectified. So um, I think as is always the case in the Premier League because of its relentless nature, because we don't have a winter break, that the fixture list in mid-November through to February will be crucial in defining 
uh, what the positions will be at the end of the season. And uh, I, I suspect that Man United will return, Mourinho will return from this international break, both revived and renewed in terms of their challenge. Um, and it'll be interesting having the same conversation uh, two weeks to a month from now, um, because I think things will have changed both at the top of the league in terms of the points difference and in the way Manchester United play. Well, he, should also, he should also have Paul Pogba back. They expect Pogba to be back from his hamstring injury after this international break, and that's you know the other element of context that's been missing here. He's played these recent games without his most expensive player and most important midfielder, and also without um, being able to start Marouane Fellaini in his place, which has limited his midfield options. But um, so once you get these players back, you can change the way you play and uh, go back. I'm sure that once Fellaini's back, that'll close the gap on Manchester City. Tongue planted firmly in cheek there, I do hope. Um, and it's interesting that you say that, uh, you know, Lukaku has lost form, but look, the criticisms of Lukaku are very similar to the criticisms of Mourinho at the moment and that he doesn't do so well against the big sides. And so he's, you know, United had a very good... Uh, run a fixtures at the start of the season where they weren't playing against major title rivals and Lukaku looks like a, a goal scoring genius as they said in the song but um, you know suddenly when the, the fixtures get tougher against title rivals he's gone missing um, so I'm not sure if it's a lack of form or a lack of talent <laughs> anyway um, you mentioned uh, our, our uh, friend Marwan Fellaini, and of course he was uh, signed one of two signings for Manchester United by none other than the new West Ham manager David Moyes, who um, you know whose appointment has been greeted with uh, some level of dismay around, amongst the uh, the West Ham faithful. Ian, um, tell me what you think about this appointment, this short term appointment initially, and a six month deal. Um, is it likely to be extended um, because of success or will this be another uh, black mark on Moyes' record? Well, it's, it's a, it was a surprise appointment in some ways, Henry, um, because Moyes has been out of football and because uh, when he took the Sunderland job, obviously they were relegated and he had a, a full season, um, um, effective almost a full season to, to get that right. Um West Ham are in dire, dire straits, that's for sure. Uh, what the owners have decided to do, as indeed the uh, owners at Leicester City uh, and Crystal Palace uh, decided, and Everton decided to do, um, is based on surviving the Premier League's uh, financial benefit. And by that, obviously, it's the share of the massive broadcast deal, um, which is currently in place and, and pays out uh, between the region of 18 and 120 million pounds guaranteed plus bonuses uh, per season. No club in the Premier League can afford uh, to miss out on that, and three will. And at the moment, West Ham, indeed Everton, are uh, one of the favourites to do so. Is David Moyes the man to, to stop that happening? Well, that's definitely for debate. His, his record since leaving Everton has been poor um, uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, he is not a man who, as uh, as Scots, we, we would say, provides an instant inject of uh, of super energy into anything. He is quite dour. Uh, he's very much a realist and a pragmatist. Uh, and, I, and also um, someone who uh, is not renowned for working miracles. Uh, he did an exceptional job at Everton. We did so over an 11-year period. So to ask him to come in over six months and keep West Ham up is something which he's never done before. Uh, it's interesting that uh, Everton are flirting with uh, with Sam Allardyce, uh, who also seemed an uninspirational uns un appointment. But Sam has a good record of keeping clubs up. He did it with Sunderland. He did it with Crystal Palace. So um, why did West Ham then therefore go for Moyes? I think the reason for that is he's got experience. He's a disciplinarian. They've got a dressing room full of fairly talented players who are underperforming. Uh, Moyes will take... Uh, no prisoners with regards to people who are um, lazy or underperforming in, in training and also in games. Uh, I think one of the most interesting things uh, is that West Ham have promised investment in January, which as soon as you advertise that, it just puts the price up 50 to 100%. 
Because if you're a Premier League club and every other club in Europe knows you've got money, then the minute you say we're going to invest and we'll we'll we'll, we'll buy four players has been the, the number mentioned, you're going to have to pay over the odds for those players as every club does in January anyway. So um, I'm slightly sceptical about exactly how they're going to improve that squad because for me, it's one of the most unbalanced teams I've seen play this season. I've seen West Ham play several times. Uh, they seem to have no balance in terms of their width, their midfield. The striking um, rota seems to change game by game. They don't know whether to play long to Andy Carroll or short into uh, Chicharito. Uh, there, there's just no plan. Uh, Moyes will certainly bring a plan. He'll bring a formation. He'll bring a tactical nous. Whether or not he can inspire and motivate a group of players which has been underperforming and underachieving is another thing. Um, and just one thing on uh, his press conference yesterday, which I thought was brilliantly ironic, is that when asked about the short-term contract of six months, which, by the way, has a break period after six months with uh, option to renew on both sides for two years, is that he said, this is the way managerial contracts will go in the future. They'll be much shorter term, et cetera, et cetera. This coming from a man who's effectively still being paid by Manchester United on the six-year contract he signed after the um, uh, resignation of Sir Alex Ferguson. So um, some, you've got a lot to prove, put it that way. Yeah, look, it's interesting you mentioned Sam Allardyce in there because um, in many ways he would have been the ideal appointment in a circumstance like this where you're looking to someone to keep you in the Premier League if it wasn't for the fact that he'd already appointed Sam Allardyce and he was hounded out of the club the supporters who, who in discussed that it is uh, his brand of football, which doesn't fit the, the West Ham legend and, uh, and mentality. Um, I think the sacking of Slavin Bilic, as, as we pointed out on this pod uh, during the transfer window, has been a long time coming, and uh, Slavin Bilic will be in no way surprised that uh, the money he was denied uh, to make the, what he considers the most important signing of William Carvalho in the, in the transfer window is going to be uh, redistributed to David Moyes to buy players in January because that was exactly his prediction during the transfer window that the owners have turned off the taps on me um, and they are saving the cash for later on. So um, I think Ian's right. January is a bad time to buy. It's an even worse time when you've advertised your need. Um, but I think they will probably have enough to stay up because the squad isn't an appalling squad. Um, David Moyes, for all his tra problems and traumas at Sunderland, is a pragmatic, organised manager who usually trains his teams well, who um, prepares them physically well, and they only need to be better than three teams to remain in the division. So given the resources available to him, given his experience of the Premier League, given the budget uh, that they have to spend in January and the time they have to do that, um, whether, where he takes the team from there will be interesting to watch. We should mention as well, Henry, the, um, the apparently um, endless ability of flirtation of, of, of Sam Allardyce I mean, only this morning through uh, my social media feeds, uh, I've learned that not only would you like to manage Everton, but also you'd like to manage the United States national team. And indeed, apart this morning, he's also said that at some point he would like to, in inverted commas, help his old club, Bolton Wanderers, um, rather than manage them again. Which makes me think we should change his name from Big Sam to Ubiquitous Sam, uh, <laughs> as he seems to be everywhere uh, and wanting to do everything. Um, and, I, and, and, and again... Uh, regarding the Everton situation, and we should you know, take this to Everton because, again, uh, and I said this at the time as well, um, any football club who sacks a manager in, in situ without having a definite idea of who is going to replace him just seems like gross mismanagement to me. And I would sack whoever tried to sack the manager. And at least West Ham were in talks with David Moyes for at least two days before they actually told Slavin Bilic that he was getting the bullet. Now, Everton... I've now been at least, what, 10, maybe 10 days, two weeks now, without a, a scooby, really, about who they're going to um, place. And I don't mean Alec McLeish for that matter either. Good um, usage. Indeed. There's no scooby there <laughs> with, regards, with regards to scooby. And um, 
that even Scooby's not on the list. So uh, you've got to ask yourself, you know, who, who, the people in charge, and I say people in charge, I think there's definitely a split. I think the majority shareholder uh, and the Everton executive board um, are not in agreement about who they should get in. This very, very fanciful notion that Diego Simeone will somehow, you know, leave Atletico Madrid uh, and join Everton and in the relegation battle, um, which is, the, again, uh, Farah Moshri's um, wish is ridiculous. That just shows someone who unfortunately doesn't seem to have a grasp on how uh, football really works. Um, and then you've got the realism and pragmatism of Bill Kenwright, who's known English football and in t- been in charge of Everton for many, many years, uh, and, and, and suggesting Sam Allardyce, who, as I've mentioned previously, has been the red adair of football in terms of keeping teams in the Premier League, uh, like he did at Sunderland and Crystal Palace. Uh, I think the disparity of view there is significant. Um, I think a long-term appointment would be foolish of Everton at this moment in time. Uh, they should do uh, what West Ham hope they've done, and that is put someone in place at the end of the season who will keep them up and then take a break and make a decision uh, about what the long-term future of the club is uh, in the summer. Uh, and for that reason, I think Aldice would be a good appointment. Of course, he comes with the baggage of uh, a compensation payment to Crystal Palace whereby they, they must be paid, I think, in the region of £2 million um, if Allardyce takes another Premier League job in the 12 months uh, since his resignation as Palace manager because he made it clear to Palace chairman uh, Steve Parrish that he was he was going not to another job, but indeed to uh, have some time with his family. Um, given his recent PR round of uh, Middle Eastern television, uh, television in the UK, uh, radio, uh, the Aberdeen Fish Trader magazine, I believe, and interview with him tomorrow as well. Uh, he seems to be spreading himself a little thin for a big man uh, in terms of uh, trying to increase his profile and get a new job. So uh, I think it's safe to say that Sam's had enough of family life and wants to get back to football. OK, it's interesting you mentioned Sam Allardyce because I see that people close to him have been briefing that he's not happy to take the Everton job on a short-term basis. He only wants to do it as a long-term project. He's looking for a long-term project in football that excites him. So he's, he's, he clearly thinks he has a good chance of getting this job because he's, he's trying to position himself not only to get a contract till the end of the season, he wants a contract in the long term, which as we know, is a very attractive one because Everton have a lot of money to spend and put into the transfer market, um, not just in January, but particularly next summer. And it's quite relevant to the process of selecting a new manager and that the briefing I've had is that Farhad Mashiri wants the calibre of coach who will help him in that kind of recruitment. He's talking about buying proper elite level players and bringing them to Everton, which is uh, a big ask, you would, you would think, on the surface. But that's, that's his strategy and that's the kind of uh, cash he's prepared to put into transfers. And he believes to do so, he needs a top uh, draw manager to be in charge of that process, which I think is where you get um, the links with people like Diego Simeone and Carlo Ancelotti, who's turned down um, an invite to take over there because they, he's looking longer term. Um, and frankly, I think that it makes sense for them to go for a high-quality manager. The problem is getting hold of one at present. They're, Ancelotti is obviously out of work but doesn't want the job. But there are very, actually very few elite managers waiting for jobs at present. Um, so it could take until the summer for one of those to become available. And even then, you have to convince the guy in question that a club of Everton stature, who are certainly not going to have Champions League football next season, and you would think would find it difficult to get Champions League football down the line, are the place he would want to go to and see his career developing at. Okay, um, let's go on to our regular slot, the quickfire round, which is often a contradiction in uh, in terms. Um, or a non-sequitur, as we said, Latin, Henry. Right, okay. Um, <laughs> that's easy for you to say. 
we were thinking about sticker twist on these managerial merry-go-round. We've got a few high-profile clubs um, and a few managers who look like they may be coming to the end of their uh, terms there, uh, albeit in varying degrees. So how about I give you a club, you tell me whether you think the club will stick with a manager or move on with a twist, and if you can even elaborate with uh, who they might find to replace them, then even better. So, Ian, we'll start with you. Manchester United. Uh, I stick Henry. Um, if they give Mourinho what he wants and, he's, uh, and achieve his long-term plan, they'll get success. Duncan, Chelsea. Chelsea will twist. Um, their manager will twist. Um, and I think they will continue to explore the possibility of taking Thomas Tuchel as their next manager. Arsenal. Everyone, I think, believes that Arsenal should twist on their manager. Um, and I think uh, their choices are limited. Um, however, I would say that Tuchel would be a possibility as well for Arsenal. Um, but uh, it's clear that the hierarchy there have no idea what to do and therefore we should not try and second-guess them. Duncan, Liverpool. Liverpool, I think, will twist if um, Klopp fails to get Champions League football or a trophy this season, which is looking a distinct possibility. If I was Liverpool, I would try to hire Marco Silva as his replacement. Ian, Real Madrid. Difficult one. Uh, sack a legend like uh, Zizou. Um, and replace them with who? Uh, don't get me wrong, it's, it's absolutely within Real's um, modus operandi uh, to to do such things uh, and set them within Florentino Perez's uh, way of doing it. I just don't see anyone out there who currently could demand or sorry, command the both respect and that dressing room the same way as Zizou does. It's been a bad start to the season. I would stick. And uh, Duncan, PSG. As we've discussed, PSG are preparing to twist um, if Unai Emery doesn't uh, take them as far in the Champions League as they want this season. I think they will end up twisting because the, the problems are, are, are large between him and the players. Their first choice to replace him is Jose Mourinho. Um, they're dependent on Manchester United as to whether they have that opportunity to take him or not. Okay, um, gentlemen, thank you. Uh, leaving thoughts, give us a quick one. Who, who, um, who's going to be the next Everton manager? Allardyce, I think, will be eventually be appointed on a short-term contract. Duncan, you've disappeared. No, Ian's, Ian's opinion's fine by me. <laughs> okay, second. The motion has been seconded. Um, that's the, uh, that's enough for this week. Um, unless it sounds like there's some other business coming from Duncan. There is one other piece of business which uh, I think we should pay attention to, which is Sergio Ramos's uh, come and get, come come to Real Madrid, uh, invite to Neymar that he issued um, very uh, mischievously this week. Um, it's an interesting one because Real Madrid tried to sign Neymar before he went to Barcelona, and it was mooted that they would um, that they could take him from Barcelona. Uh, while he was at the club um, before he moved to PSG. And in fact, Sergio Ramos, uh, his statement said, maybe it's easier to go to PSG um, on your way to a club like Real Madrid. So keep our eyes on that one, I think. OK. Um, thanks, gents. Great as always. Um, this has been the Transfer Window podcast brought to you uh, by myself, Henry McRae, Ian McGarry and Duncan Castles. You can find us on iTunes, you can find us on Audioboom, you can find us on a number of other podcast platforms and um, clearly you have if you're listening to this now and um, we'll be back next week at some point, until then toodaloo the new.